The great house stands in majestic isolation under the brightness of a full moon, but none who live there know that on this night, the full moon will mean something it has never meant before. It is the sign of a new and terrifying evil that prowls the woods of the Collins estate in search of a victim and initiating even more terror at Collinwood. Welcome to episode 14 of Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle S. Solivera Galerter, a.k.a. Penny Dreadful. And uh, before we dive in today, I have some fun news for you. As many of you know, I am also a television horror movie hostess. I hosted the show Shilling Shockers on local television in haunted New England for 10 years. And uh, although the show ended a while back, I do uh, an annual Halloween special, which is posted directly to the Shilling Shockers Vimeo channel. And this year's Halloween special will feature the film Night Tide, directed by Curtis Harrington and starring a very young Dennis Hopper. And it will also feature the short film, A Poem of Poe, as part of the Theater Fantastique series directed by Ansel Farage. And of course, you heard Ansel in episode five of this podcast. Ansel is a huge Dark Shadows fan and a very talented filmmaker and a big monster kid. And uh, the film uh, features Christopher Pennock, who Dark Shadows fans will, of course, know from his many roles on DS. So you can find... Uh, that on the Shilling Sharkers Vimeo channel. I'll post a link to that. That'll be coming out at the end of October 2021, and it'll be archived there. Since we're in the midst of the spooky season, Halloween is upon us. There's also lots of great Dark Shadows merchandise and great Dark Shadows stuff out there right now. I'm just going to uh, mention a few of them here right now. Paperback Classics is releasing audio versions of the classic Dan Marilyn Ross Dark Shadows novels, and you can find those at Paperback backclassics.com and they are read by the one and only Catherine Lee Scott. So you can listen to all of your favorite Ross novels now read by Catherine Lee Scott. Uh, they have CDs and they have the digital versions. I actually just ordered uh, Barnabas Collins versus the Warlock. It just came in the mail. So I'm excited to listen to that during my next drive. Also speaking about the uh, Dan Ross novels, Hermes Press is releasing all of the Ross novels. They are reprinting them all. Uh, I got an email recently informing me that Barnabas Quentin and the Witch's Curse and Barnabas Quentin and the Crystal Coffin are uh, uh, available at uh, Hermes Press website, hermes-press.myshopify.com. Hermes Press also has released collections of the Gold Key Dark Shadows comics, the Dark Shadows Story Digest, the Dark Shadows newspaper strips. They're doing an amazing job. In addition to all of that, the Jonathan Fred documentary is now available. Um, you can get it at Apple TV. You can get it on a Blu-ray, uh, DVD through Amazon. Um, I am eagerly awaiting my copy from Amazon. It should be in any day now, so I look forward to watching that. And uh, last but not least, uh, I received a message from writer and longtime Dark Shadows fan Rod Labby, who has informed me that he has a major interview with Lara Parker, which is appearing in the new issue of Retro Fan Magazine. Retro Fan Magazine is a really cool magazine. Um, uh, Lara is on the cover, the vampire Angelique 
uh, is right on the cover of the magazine. Dark Shadows' Lara Parker comes alive in an exclusive interview, and it was Rod who conducted that interview, so make sure you check that out. Retro Fan Magazine uh, number 17. Um, that issue of Retro Fan Magazine number 17 also features articles about Mad Monster Party, the Aurora Monster Model Kits, and has a chat with James Bama, the painter of the Aurora Model Kits. So lots of cool stuff in there. In addition, make sure to check out the most recent issue of Dark Side Magazine out of the UK, issue number 219. Uh, there's a full-length article about Dark Shadows in that issue too. And uh, it's a painted cover with Barnabas and Angelique. So lots of cool stuff going on. And now let's Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am really excited to bring you my guest today. It is Scribe Award winner Stephen D. Sullivan, who's a prolific game designer, author, artist, and radio host. He's best known for his work on Dungeons and Dragons for TSR and was one of the prime creators of Chill, a really cool tabletop horror role-playing game. I used to have it. Uh, Steven's books include Daikaiju Attack and novelizations of White Zombie and Manos, The Hands of Fate. He's the creator and writer of Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and Frost Harrow, a modern gothic horror series, which could be described as Dark Shadows meets Stephen King. Stephen's website can be found at stephendsullivan.com. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, it's, re it's really great to be here with a, an old Dark Shadows fan like myself. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm so thrilled that you're that you're here to to talk Dark Shadows, I and mean, we've messaged uh, a bit over on uh, Facebook, and and I've heard you, of course, on Monster Kid Radio, Derek M. Cook's wonderful podcast uh, about classic monster movies, and um, I know you're you are an aficionado and a big Dark Shadows fan as well. Uh, so tell me about your introduction to Dark Shadows. How did you first get into Dark Shadows, Stephen? I was a, a monster kid pretty much ever since I can remember. You know, I know I probably started with dinosaurs, which a lot of monster kids, I think, probably did <laughs> when I was, you know, I, I remember I was in the hospital for a long time when I was five. And I remember getting dinosaurs for my birthday and being really thrilled with dinosaurs, even at five. And somehow I segued from dinosaurs into things like Godzilla, Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Aurora model kits and all monsters in general. So by the time I was, you know, six or seven, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was on. I was trying to sneak downstairs and watch that past my bedtime. And somewhere in there, as we moved from New Jersey to Massachusetts, I discovered Dark Shadows in a TV listing in the TV Guide in Boston. And it was not on at the three to four o'clock hour that it was supposed to be. It was on something like, my memory says it was 9 a.m., maybe 9.30. It was one of those really odd hours that was fortunately just after school started. Now, was this in 68 or 67? Or? It was, I think it was 68. It was right at the start of the Quentin storyline okay. and the werewolf storyline that we're going to talk about, which was kind of perfect for me. Yeah. <laughs> I started Dark Shadows. I think it may have, it may have said horror, but I think more likely it said melodrama. Mm -hmm. And I, I knew from my experience with searching through the TV guide for things to watch, which is something all of us did back in the day. You got the TV guide every week and then you took a pen and you marked the stuff you wanted to watch. If yep. you were a monster kid, yep. you would find all the sci-fi stuff and all the horror stuff and you would mark it. And I 
came across the Dark Shadows listening, and I don't think it, it may not have even said anything more than melodrama, but it was like, well, that sounds like it might be a horror thing. And it stuck in my head. And I'm not sure if I was homesick or if it was right around the holidays, because I looked up when these episodes happened, and it was right around the holiday period in that year, and managed to see one of them. And I believe the first one I saw is the one, it's either the one where the werewolf, you don't see the werewolf, but he kills the innkeeper, or it's the one, more likely it's the one where I I think Liz is going through a bunch of other stuff, and it's not really super exciting stuff. But at the end, you get to see Chris Jennings' hand, and it's the hand of a werewolf. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to watch this show. (laughs) I'm, you know, the werewolf, uh, Wolfman, is probably my second favorite monster after the creature from the Black Lagoon, not counting things like Godzilla, which are a completely different class. Mm-hmm. So that was that in itself was exciting to me. And it was like, I have to see this show again. And as I said, when I looked it up, it ends up that's right around the holidays was the stuff I was seeing. Mm-hmm. But basically, it became my mission in life to see every episode of this I can't could at that point, even if it meant staying from home from home from school when I was sick, when maybe I wasn't really sick. Or maybe I was just a little bit <laughs> sick. It's like, how long can I keep this thermometer in my in my mouth before it'll right. go up above 98.6? Yeah, it's such a bad time for, for them to air Dark Shadows at 9 a.m. because like a lot of kids were watching the show. I mean, the whole, you know, meme of, uh, you know, of, uh, I ran home from school to watch Dark Shadows that same. And my, my uncle was, uh, Valdemar, was in New Bedford in the 60s. And the affiliate that was airing it there was airing it. He said, I think he said it started originally when he first started watching it in 67, I think it was 3.30 and then it moved to four o'clock. Um, so he would watch it after school. And uh, But some of the other affiliates were airing it at strange times, you know, that I've, I've noticed like what you described. So there was a period there right at the start of the Quentin series where between holidays and being and or faking sick, I was a sick kid. So it wasn't like I need to fake sick a lot because I have bad lungs, still have bad lungs. So I I would be home sometimes. And I, I managed to actually catch enough of the storyline to actually feel like I didn't miss any of the storyline mm-hmm. right at that end where the Quentin storyline started that overlaps the end of the Adam storyline. Yep. I managed to somehow see the Quentin parts and the werewolf parts and completely miss the Adam parts and the wrap up to the old storyline. So it seemed to me like I was seeing the whole show. It's interesting when when I had uh, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Thompson on here, he described the Dark Shadow storylines. It's really, it's structured more like a newspaper comic strip almost where you have a story arc and then it kind of ends and the next one dovetails with it and then starts up this whole new storyline. And you came in right at the start of that. So that's an excellent kind of intro to the show. Now, did you continue to watch it all the way through the rest of it or were you on and off after that? It was no. Once I found it, I watched every episode I could. And we got lucky because it must have been maybe it was right at the start of the new year. Mm -hmm. They switched from the early morning hours into it was either three thirty or four. I don't remember which. Um, and if your your uncle was watching it at three thirty, there were there were two stations that were showing it. There was the Providence ABC yeah. station and the Boston ABC station, which I think was Channel Seven at the time, but it's now Channel Five. Mm-hmm. And they were they showed it different hours. 
slightly. They were just, they were half an hour apart. So right at near the start of the Quentin thing, suddenly we could watch it. And Providence was also showing it. So we could watch the same episode twice in one day. That's awesome. <laughs> which was awesome. But then it got even more awesome because somehow the earlier show, the 331, fell out of sync with a four o'clock one because they preempted it or something. So for most of the run or most of the latter part of the run of Dark Shadows, we got to see the day before episode at 3.30 and then the new one at four. And my my brother, who's closest in age to me, Mark, and I were we were those kids that were jumping off the bus, running up the driveway to sit down at 3.30, which was about the time we got home and watching. We would then watch an hour of Dark Shadows. We were lucky in the fact that yeah. very early in the run and for most of the run, we got to see, I think, every show twice. That's so cool. An hour block of Dark Shadows. Usually, It was. It was the most amazing thing. <laughs> that's great. And rewatching the one from the day before, too. That's dedication. Like you watched it the day before and then you rewatch it the next and the day. And then we rewatched it. And we did that every day until, <laughs> until the series ended. The sad thing was when the series ended, we didn't get to see the end one twice because the 3.30 show then showed it again at four opposite the other one. So we only saw the last show once. What was your uh, reaction when it ended? Did you did you know that it was coming to an end? Or I think we did um, because I, I think it was my memory is that it, it was all over the news and it was kind of like, what, really? Yeah. yeah. You're going to end here? Yeah, 1841 parallel time. It's, yeah, uh, it's, it's... You aren't at least going to go back to our mm-hmm. current crew and talk about them and how they right. lived happily ever after? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have been nice to, I think, just do one more week where they're in the present day, you know, where with the with the Collins family we know. Uh, I would have is... settled even for part of that show Yeah, to suddenly okay. go back and, and show mm-hmm. that, you know, Barnabas and all the rest of them were still doing fine in 1972. Agreed. Agreed. I think they were just at that point from everything I've seen over the, over the years, it's like everyone involved with the show was ready to move on. The show was becoming very expensive to produce and ABC was, uh, as Mary O'Leary mentioned when she was on the podcast, you know, they, they asked Dan Curtis if he could bring the cost down to produce the show. And he said, no, uh, he, he was interested in going to make more movies. Uh, I think everyone was kind of kind of burned out at the writers were were kind of tapped at that point. Although one thing that the writers always would say, and Dan Curtis is like, we ran out of ideas. We didn't have any more ideas. We used every horror story in the book. And I I definitely disagree with that. I think Me they, too. They, they still had, I thought they still had plenty of stuff they could have done with a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously people are so popular with Barnabas. I get that the actors were burned out and that's why we started losing actors. I'm sure that's one of the reasons Catherine Lee Scott left when she did. It's just like the grind of doing what was essentially a live teleplay every day, five days a week. It must have just been insane. I mean, I've, I've worked, you know, worked at TSR when it was a young company, worked at Pace Center when it was a young company. And there were times where we were just in the office constantly yeah. working on D&D or working on chill. Yeah. Uh, I remember going and printing the D&D basic and expert sets where we were literally would get up before the sun came up, drive to the printing presses uh, where they were creating the thing, putting the the books together physically proofing them as they came off before they were sent to be photographed and turned into plates and printed and then going home after it was dark at night yeah and there were times at pace center where i remember my my wife now but my fiance then had come to see me at the office and she ended up sleeping on the couch <laughs> and we never uh-huh. went home because we were working all night on chill and those are 
you really bond with people in those experiences. They're really important for friendships. Sure. But if it goes on too long, well, it's like the pandemic. It's like, okay, hey, great. I don't have to go into work for a while for some people. Or, or I get to stay home or my wife gets to be home with me. Right. And then after a little while, you're like, okay. Yeah. It's been a lot of time. And yeah. now- but you're right. You go through that experience and there's a there's a bond that's forged. And I'm glad uh, you gave me a great segue with regard to the role-playing background that you have in working on role-playing games, creating role-playing games. Uh, you have an extensive background and um, a lot of fans of pop culture in general are role-playing game fans, tabletop role-playing, all of this kind of stuff. I have always wondered why there isn't a Dark Shadows role-playing game. There seem to be role-playing games for everything that I've seen over the years. All of of the big pop culture uh, franchises, I guess, you know, you see the Star Trek and the Doctor Who and the Star Wars and, uh, you know, Universal Monsters and all of these, uh, even I've, I've worked pretty extensively in the last 10 years or so on Masters of the Universe, on the He-Man and the Masters of the Universe from the 80s, and um, did a character guide and world compendium and a newspaper strip book and all these other things. And now there is from Fandom, the Fandom Company, they're releasing a Masters of the Universe role-playing game, tabletop RPG. I think they're playtesting it right now. Right. There's a huge Masters of the Universe tabletop game coming out too that was, you know, one of those, the buy-in starts at $100 or more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Come the come on is doing it. Okay. Is it come on C M O N? And then there's the Fields of Eternia, the European game as well. But Dark Shadows needs a role playing game. I think. I I think it would lend itself pretty well to a role playing game. And I'm thinking along the lines of Ravenloft, the the Dungeons and Dragons setting of Ravenloft, which was a gothic horror template. And it in many ways it was similar to Dark Shadows in that they incorporated a lot of classic horror stories and characters and archetypes into their world and adapted them into Dungeons and Dragons. So it was this domain of dread and each one of the Dark Lords is based on a classic literature character, you know? And uh, I would say Strahd, the character Strahd is actually pulls a lot directly from Barnabas Collins. There, There's the whole Josette aspect that's clearly inspired by Barnabas in, in that aspect. Um, why, Stephen, isn't there a Dark Shadows role playing game? And should why why haven't why don't you make a Dark Shadows role playing game? That's my that's my I would love to see that. The, the answer to the second one is that I'm interested, Dark Shadows people. If you want to talk to me, I will figure it out, and I have enough friends in the industry that we will somehow be able to do that. The historical answer would be: I think that horror role playing games were not really super popular Mm -hmm. um, at the time that a lot of this stuff was going on. I remember that when Tracy Hickman created Ravenloft, like his when he created Dragonlance, there was a serious kind of pushback in the company against even doing the idea. The, the executives of the company didn't think that this was a good idea. They didn't think people would like it. They didn't think horror would mix well with the kind of systems that Dungeons and Dragons supported and the way that people played it and stuff. But they're, you know, there were enough of us in the company that supported Tracy's ideas, and uh, one of them was Andrea Heyday, who also ended up working with uh, with us on Chill, who was one of our, our prime people working on Chill as well, that thought this was just a great idea, and that if we could meld that into the, the D&D setting, super. And obviously, as the years have gone on, 
you know, there was one Ravenloft module, and now there's tons of Ravenloft stuff from this setting that, at the time, they didn't think would work. They're like, why aren't you concentrating on on the official D&D settings? Why do you need a world where there's horror? Why? There were all these reasons not to do it. And I think, in some sense, back in the early 80s, at the same time, the horror role-playing games had been, I, I wouldn't say completely wrapped up, but it had been largely that that niche had been filled by call of cthulhu Mm -hmm. which continues to this day yes i mean you know before call of cthulhu came out it was only like a bunch of us nutty readers that knew who hp lovecraft was knew what cthulhu was had a way of even pronouncing it Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) and and so that had taken one section of the market and when we created chill after in 1984, we were creating chill to fill the segments of the horror market that Call of Cthulhu wasn't filling, which was the gothic horror, dark shadows type of edge of the market. And that was what we were interested in. And if you look at the, you know, the dozen or two dozen uh, game modules we put out for that, you'll see that we were aiming for that corner of the market. We were, that was part of what we were doing. Chill in its original form only lasted, the company only lasted two years. And once the original Chill was off the market, the second edition of Chill became much more of a slasher game Mm -hmm. because it was the 80s and they replaced our our Raven, who was the narrator of the game, with uh, some kind of a faceless killer. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was was a a big twist away from the gothic horror style Mm -hmm. that we wanted the game to be Mm -hmm. into a... A 1980s horror style. And, you know, there are things I love about horror in the 1980s. I love John Carpenter's work particularly, but a lot of it is just not as interesting to me mm-hmm. as vampires and werewolves and that Same. kind of stuff. And, Same. Yep. You know, we'd even done at the end of uh, the chill run, we'd even done a the creature feature where you could actually play the parts of the monsters, which was just a blast. Playing, playing the envoys of the good save, the just to back up a little, the Characters in Chill belong to an organization called SAVE, yeah. which was, it stood for uh, Societas Albe Vie Eternitata or something like that. It was, you know, a Latin name, so we got the acronym. And they were, it was basically the X-Files before there were yeah. the X-Files. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. Now, do you think that Dark Shadows would work as an RPG setting? I think it potentially would work as an RPG setting. When we were at Pace Center, one of the things that we did later on was we licensed, got a license from Elvira, and we did a, a book of Elvira based role playing settings where you know we would have her voice and pictures of her and do a little intro in her in her voice the way she would in her introductions and then have a fairly straightforward chill game. I would think that if original chill had survived as a gothic horror game, there's no reason to think that Dark Shadows would not have been a license that somebody might have pursued. Certainly it was something that those of us that were there at the time were interested in. And, and you know, it's been a long time since I've seen Ravenloft, but it wouldn't, and I'd have to call him and ask him, but it wouldn't surprise me at all that that was one of Tracy's influences as well. And clearly it was something Andrea knew about as well and something I was very into and, you know, where others were in the company were probably more into universal horror or him 
hammer hard, but clearly that potential was there. But once chill shifted from a, a classic monsters game into an eighties game, it never, it has never really gotten back to its roots. Right. And at the same time, the other monster games that sprang up at that time were things like vampire, the masquerade, sure. which was more of the kind of, for lack of a better thing, because I think they owe these guys royalties. It was more like the underworld settings. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It was a much different kind of setting. So I, I think in some sense, the gothic horror moment in the 80s passed, and it's never really been regained. Although, you know, with games like Horrified, which is based on the Universal Monsters, it's possible that now would be a really good time to redo Dark Shadows games. That's and of course, true. we remember the ones that we had as a kid. I have the, <laughs> you know, the Whitman board game, which is a yeah. fun card placement game. And then the, the one, the goofy spinner one where you spin and build Bar- your skills. Yes, the Barnabas well. Collins board game. Yeah, I have both of those too. Those are those are really fun. Um, you know, but I'm thinking more along the lines of like a full-on tabletop in-depth game with a, with a thick rule book that has all the lore in it and, and the rules and beautiful illustrations by artists in that sort of gothic style. You know, I, I just think it would lend itself well to that. And with all of these independent companies that exist now kickstarting their own RPGs, I really think that it could work if somebody actually got the license. I don't, I think uh, the licensing does go through Dan Curtis Holdings with, you know, Jim Pearson, I think handles all of that. And MPI puts out most of the Dark Shadows merchandise. But one of the things I really want to do with this podcast as I go through is explore ideas for other Dark Shadows merchandise. Like for example, Mark Maddox did the artwork for that amazing lunchbox that MPI did. And I was really excited that they did that because that was something new. But the RPG, it's just... It hasn't ever existed for Dark Shadows, and I think that's kind of a shame because and it could, it, it could really easily. It, it's definitely as a type of gaming that I think Chill, the original Chill, really could have handled well. Yeah, and I don't see any reason why you couldn't do it nowadays either under an existing system that's fairly flexible, like uh, D6 times D6, mm-hmm. which is uh, done by Lister Smith, which is a very simple, straightforward role-playing game, or creating its own little system. And you'd have to figure out whether the the cla- you would be playing the classic characters from the yeah. series or whether you'd be playing descendants of those characters or whether you'd be playing some kind of investigators with it. There were, there's a lot of kind of crunchy stuff you'd have mm-hmm. to figure out and try to figure out what, what the audience for the game, what the people that would buy it would want most in a Dark Shadows world playing game. It's mm-hmm. it's possible, you know, sometimes you create a, you put a lot of energy into creating something that's new and different and people go, oh, I just wanted to replay the TV series. Right. So it's possible that might that might be where people would want to go. It's possible that you know, if that was the case, it might even be better off as some kind of an interesting board game rather than a full RPG. Or, you know, obviously there's the chance to kind of do hybrids and stuff. I think there's definitely the possibility is there. And I I think it could be done. And if the people that hold the license, if the Dark Shadows licensors are interested in that, I'm certainly willing to take a stab at it. And I could recruit enough people, <laughs> enough great awesome. designers and people that are interested to put together a pretty great Dark Shadows role playing game. Wonderful. And, Including and, people like Mark, you know, I mean, yeah, there, it's a, in some sense, those of us that are monster kids are kind of a small community mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, I, you know, a lot of the people that I know, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of the people that you know, and there's quite a bit of overlap, not, not completely, but yeah. it's kind of a close knit thing, which is good 
from the sense of getting things together and, and doing them, but might be bad in the sense of it might be the, the market is just not big enough that we can afford what the licensing fee would be that they would want. And that certainly has kept things from happening in the past. I mean, that's why we, you know, it's lack of money, I think, that keeps us from having it conquered the world out on DVD or Blu-ray, right? Sure, yeah. Because she wants more money than Susan Hart wants more money than people want to pay right. to do it. Or so there is an economics factor. Mm-hmm. As, and if there weren't, heck, you know, <laughs> if you, if you want to let him Give me the Dark Shadows licensing and we'll split the profits. There we We go. There we go. Yeah. I mean, I think Kickstarter is a good way to go and having incentives and things to unlock, like as fans contribute. Dark Shadows fans tend to support anything with the Dark Shadows. Like I have a checkbook cover that has the Dark Shadows logo on it. (laughs) I mean, it's like they'll put the Dark Shadows logo on something and fans will buy it. If you do a full on role playing game, I guarantee even people that don't play role playing games will still get the book because they'll want to to have that in their collection, you know, and then you do the modules, you have the adventures that you, you bring up a good, a good point. Like what is the angle? Like, are you somebody who's coming to Collinsport and becomes involved in the intrigues there? Are you a member of the Collins family? Are you somebody who lives in town? Who's investigating what happens up at Collinwood? Like, are you ghosts? I mean, there's Ooh, yeah, like that. Smith is going to done a role playing game where you're all ghosts. Ooh, that's <laughs> awesome. That would be very dark shadows. Like, cause you know, with dark shadows, the, the monsters end up being the, the kind of the stars of the show and the, right. you know, so that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Wonderful. Well, let's hope fingers crossed uh, that that happens. If Jim Pearson or if anybody from uh, Dan Curtis Holdings is listening, I will put Steven's website right there in the show notes and uh, you can always reach out to me too. And, and I will pass the message along. And I'm easy to find on Facebook as well. So awesome. All right. Well, speaking of the monsters being the stars of dark shadow, I know that it, it's That's, funny that how that they did that twice uh, in a big way yeah. without actually intending for it to happen either time. And of course, we're we're about to visit another huge uh, introduction here into the Dark Shadows universe. There are two big introductions here, uh, actually, that happen. Uh, we are going to be discussing the storyline that uh, introduced Stephen to Dark Shadows, which is the ghost of Quentin Collins and the werewolf Chris Jennings storyline, two sort of concurrent storylines that end up being connected uh, in some respect as we learn as we go along. And um, this storyline dovetails with the end of the Adam storyline. The Adam storyline is wrapping up as Chris Jennings arrives in Collinsport, played by Donald Briscoe, who we previously saw as the twin of Chris Jennings, Tom Jennings, who became a vampire, yeah, and was destroyed twice. Yeah, Barnabas finally dispatched him with the Peter Cushing style, uh, (laughs) the horror of drag with the candlesticks uh, Barnabas used to make the cross were a little little smaller than the ones uh, Peter Cushing used uh, (laughs) as Van Helsing, but it still got the job done. The sun rose, Tom was destroyed, and Chris Jennings shows up, Joe Haskell's cousin, uh, you know, shows up looking for his brother. So we meet this character who seems like a nice guy, but there's a sadness to him. Yeah, he's, he's haunted. He's and just, haunted. Just before we go further yeah. forward, just so people yeah. do know, I said I'd watched Dark Shadows through the end, and I did. And I've also watched the beginning as well. Mm-hmm. I did go back later Ooh, on oh, yeah. oh, and okay. through reruns and the Sci-Fi Channel and mm-hmm. various other means. My guess is that I've seen all of them twice, and mm-hmm. I've seen parts of it 
four or five times or more, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm not, but I'm not, I haven't kept close track. So, yeah. so just so people know, and they're like, well, why is he talking about this? He doesn't know anything that happened before. He, <laughs> no, I think no. all of us Dark Shadows <laughs> fans managed to find a way. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. When, well, it was like the, the period of syndication was in, you know, in the, in the seventies and in the eighties, Dark Shadows was in syndication. I know I watched it out of um, channel 58 in Vineyard Haven out in Cape Cod and they were, they were broadcasting and my uncle got the roof antenna so we could watch it. And this was right. I remember hearing about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. We, we, we taped it. And this was like, or, you know, early VCR days. He was the first person I knew who had a VCR. I think he got, got was 82 when he got a VCR. So we started when it started airing, like he started recording them off channel 58 and they ran it all the way up until um, into parallel time, which was the end of the syndication package. Uh, So I got to watch a pretty substantial amount of Dark Shadows uh, during that time. But of course, the last year of the show and the first year of the show pre-Barnabas were not released to syndication. So I finally got to see those when MPI Home Video started putting out the VHS tapes. And my part-time job, I was working at my uncle's clothes store. All the money I made from that job was like, <laughs> went to MPI because I wanted to get those tapes or because they were kind of expensive. Uh, well, yeah. You know, if you're buying the individual episodes, they're still fairly expensive. I I was one of those people that was unfortunate enough to have, I'd been collecting the DVD sets Mm. over a number of years, and I had just gotten to the point where it didn't make any sense for me to go to the coffin box because I only had (laughs) X number of TV sets left to get. And I would have meant the coffin box was like, well, at the time, the coffin box was $500, we'll say. And collecting the ones that I still didn't have as individual sets was like 400 or something. (laughs) It was a very close call. It's an investment for sure. Um, sure. I had the tapes. I had all the tapes. And I ended up, once I got the individual volumes on DVD, uh, like my late husband has like birthday presents and stuff or Christmas presents, I'd always say, say, what do you want, baby? I'd say dark shadows, DVDs. Like I was trying to like replace the tapes <laughs> with the DVDs. So, yes. that, and I'd buy them too periodically when they were on sale. So eventually I replaced all the VHSs. I sold the VHSs, although the covers were gorgeous for those, the pictures, all of them, like two, over 200 different photographs, but they take up so much space. So I right. Sold- well, exactly. You know, yeah. I've got the complete set that way and it's, yeah. it's probably at least eight linear feet of yeah, shelf space totally, it totally for is. all of them really, too deep it, it's just it's, it's an amazing amount and part of me is like if i just waited and got the coffin it's probably it's yeah probably much, yeah much less i i i have to admit i then later also got the coffin when it was on sale so i, I had to have because that thing is so cool like the complete series in the coffin set right and i think they may have updated some of the some of the video presentations which i haven't even really dare to go look at anyway so both of us have a lot of yes yeah it's like the universal too it's like when they release the universal horror films it's like well i already have these on dvd but these dvds are different and oh look the i swear that the universal blu-rays are the last ones i'm buying (laughs) me too me too same same i got the blu-rays and i'm done until the next no <laughs> so speaking of universal uh, so we've had our dracula analog we've had our uh frankenstein analog and now here's our larry talbot uh, right the larry talbot of dark shadows the wolfman he is 
a werewolf, which Dan Curtis was reluctant to introduce a werewolf. You know, you you kind of had to do a werewolf. It was he's the werewolf after after the the vampire and Frankenstein. The werewolf is a, just a natural progression there. And I think Dan Curtis was initially reluctant because he he always kind of felt uh, that werewolves were a little hokey. But um, I think he well, clearly he relented and embraced uh, the full moon here because uh, an iconic. Uh, character played by Don Briscoe, but the the werewolf uh, role uh, when he transformed was played by stuntman Alex Stevens. He played both werewolves on the show, and he was amazing, sensational stuntman and performer, very feral in his portrayal and really just wild. He was like an animal. I mean, it, he really channeled that inner animal, and he was a Lon Chaney fan. Uh, yeah, and, and it shows the way he plays the world. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's very obviously influenced by, by Lon Chaney Jr., who kind of used to, it was like his id. He would mm-hmm. really let his dark side out when he was playing the Wolfman, and you could see it mm-hmm. all the time when he was playing it, and, and that came right into Dark Shadows. And of course, as a kid, I had no idea that it was a different person playing it. They put him in the same clothes. He, he was a wolf man now. Yeah. And as far as I was concerned, it was it was Don Briscoe. Same. Makeup, yeah, right? that's, I thought it was him for years until I, I think I was reading in uh, one of Catherine Lee Scott's books when I was a teenager. I said, oh, gosh, it wasn't him. It was somebody else. I just assumed it was him. Yeah. So what were, what were your thoughts on the werewolf Chris Jennings? The werewolf was why I was why I was watching the story, right? Mm-hmm. It was like because it was like a continuation of the Wolfman in some sense, mm-hmm. and he had that he had that haunted feeling, and he had that pathos, which not only comes from Lon Chaney around that time, but we also got some of that in the in the Fugitive. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever watched the yeah. Fugitive show with David Jansen, where he's kind mm-hmm. of on the run; he can never stay in one place very long because he's got this terrible secret that he's mm-hmm. been convicted of his wife's murder, yeah. though he didn't do it. So. Mm-hmm. It's definitely got some of that 60s holdover from The Fugitive, which was an immensely popular show. And then they repeated that somewhat in The Invaders, which yes. I don't know if you ever with watched. Roy, with Roy Thinnes. With yeah. Roy Thinnes and The Invaders, right? Yeah. It was in the later Dark Shadows reboot, I think, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, he was right. So, so there was that zeitgeist was going on, too. So it was really compelling to have this werewolf character. And as a, a young kid that's kind of leaning, leaning toward teenagehood around that time, uh, werewolves are really... <laughs> Kind of a, I think a, a teenage thing. Teenagers who hasn't felt like a werewolf when they were a teenager was <laughs> a little under out of control and stuff. And mm-hmm. and you know, and at the same time, one of the things Dark Shadows really appeals to, I think, is people that were kind of outsiders from yes. the mainstream. Yes. And as you know, as a sick kid who couldn't get out much, couldn't do couldn't do a lot of running, that kind of stuff. All of the monster characters appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And Dark Shadows and the Werewolf are certainly part of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, yeah, who wouldn't want to be a werewolf and really cut loose against the people <laughs> who really take you off? And that kind of stuff. Right. I think and this, is of, a, this is a recurring theme that comes up a lot in this podcast is that feeling like an outsider and, and connecting to those characters who were other in the show, you know, and who right. were monsters, supernatural characters. I think. Dark Shadow speaks to the misfits in, in everyone. And for a brief time, that group of everyone really expanded and became huge and popular and, you know, created the entire, as far as I'm concerned, Dark Shadows created the entire supernatural boom in the 70s, right up until we got to the the Halloween slasher epic that then kind of took it over. Totally, yeah. There was so much stuff on television. There's so many 
TV movies that had supernatural themes that owe their existence to Dark Shadows, not, you know, including the Night Stalker, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned, which obviously was, you know, produced by Dan and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it, it all goes back to this and carrying it forward. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in some ways, the werewolf introduced a different kind of supernatural element to the series. It was a similar element to the Barnabas element. But it was much more supernatural in some ways than the the Frankenstein element, which mm-hmm. always seems kind of uneasy with mm-hmm. the rest of the series. I mean, yeah, we've got Angelique and we've got Nikki hanging around and all this kind <laughs> of stuff, but it it's never kind of quite coherent. And I was reading online on I think the Dark Shadows a Day site, which is a really amusing site about oh, the, yes. the Dark Shadows Every Day blog. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love yep. that blog, yeah. and I. Because we were going to do this, I was kind of reading some of the his blogs from around the era and how kind of tangled in what conflicted direction, which way they were going to go, that they got right during the Adam storyline. It was like they had a really clear direction with Barnabas, and we, we got back to Barnabas's origins, and then we hit the the Adam storyline, the Frankenstein storyline, and they didn't seem to kind of know what they wanted to go, but. Once that ended, which was luckily right when I started, because it was kind of a hot mess at the end of the Adam storyline, it seemed like they resolved which direction they were going to go. And they were they were going to go with with Sam and Gordon Russell and, and the writers that really wanted to kind of push the edge into serious supernatural territory again. And the werewolf was one of the first manifestations of that. Right. And then immediately at the same time as the werewolf. And of course they're connected, but we didn't know this when it started, you get Quentin's ghost. Yes. Um, Quentin's ghost, of course, uh, is the other big storyline that's happening here concurrently with the werewolf storyline and the ghost of Quentin Collins and Beth Chavez, it's turn of the screw. So we're, we're doing the turn of the screw by Henry James and we're doing, uh, the Wolfman, basically the, the Universal Wolfman. A lot of elements from the Universal Wolfman are working. Right, because the Universal Wolfman is the the template, yeah, the template that all these follow, and it was completely created by Kurt Siodmak. It really the, was, yeah. You know, all of the stuff, the silver bullets, and all the stuff we think about of the werewolf is stuff that he cobbled together from ancient mm-hmm. legends that really yes. didn't have any overlying themes. Right, right. And yeah, he created this werewolf that ever since it's like, yeah, the werewolf, you kill him with silver bullets, he turns into the full moon, yeah. you know, he sees the pentagram in the hand. There, there, all there's some precedent. There's some precedent for the silver bullet thing, but it just in myth, like you said, in folklore, but there's also the full moon, which he introduced that that into into that. Of course we had Werewolf of London as well uh with Henry Hull, but I think the Wolfman, like you said, it just really set the the stage for what we think of as werewolf lore to this day, um, you know, and he incorporated all of the disparate sort of folklore and created some of his own folk, like the pentagram, seeing the, the pentagram and the, and right. the, and the palm. Yeah, and even the silver bullet wasn't a big thing in the folklore. There was, I think the beast of Javavan yes, was, yeah, yeah. was killed with a, a silver bullet that had been blessed, blessed by, yeah. I don't remember if it was the Pope right. or someone, a Cardinal or something. Yep, was, yep, but yep. there wasn't a lot of silver bullet stuff going no, on. And no. Siadmax said he stole it from the Long Ranger. Yeah, right. <laughs> he right, thought that yeah. would be cool. Right, right. <laughs> and then and then see, we had, of course, there was uh, Montague Summers who did the English translation of the Malleus Maleficorum. And he wrote all these books on, I mean, he was clearly like 
a gothic horror aficionado. This because in the 20s he was publishing like books like The Vampire, His Kith and Kin, and a history of witchcraft and all these different books and books about werewolves. He had right. There were supposedly, I think his yeah. the book of the werewolf, is that one of his that's kind of like it's a history. Yeah, yeah. It's more than a novel, but he yeah. He did a ton of them. He did a whole bunch of them. And he ostensibly like interviewed all these people and stuff and incorporated all this, these it's they're it, they're very dense books, but they're really right. kind of kind of fun to that they exist, you know. Um, but uh anyway, and, and speaking of that, like I, I've often heard people say, Oh, Dark Shadows contradicts a lot of the lore about like vampires and werewolves and stuff. And I I actually find that Dark Shadows is pretty good at using that existing lore that exists, like the silver thing, like the werewolves, uh, the silver bullet thing and the full moon thing and seeing the pentagram uh, on the victim, on the next victim. And that stuff is all was there or, or with vampires, vampires not casting reflections or being destroyed by a, a wooden stake or repelled by a holy symbol. Like, I, I think that Dark Shadows did actually incorporate a lot of... Uh, established rules about monsters. I don't know why sometimes people say, oh, Dark Shadows always contradicts that stuff. I don't find that that's I did, the case. I, I, did, I agree with you. And yeah. I think that the reason people say that is because they are used to brand X vampire, brand yeah. Y werewolf. That It's like any vampire that differs from the universal vampires or from, you know, the hammer vampire or... You know, it's like the universal vampires and the hammer vampires are two very different sets of vampires. Yeah. But people will get fastened onto one of them and then expect all the other ones that are going to be that way. You know, it's like, oh, I I like Vampire the Masquerade and all vampires should be like the vampires. Right. And if it's not, it's wrong. They're wrong if it's not like that. And that's not the case. It's like people bring their own interpretation to it or pick and choose the things they want to use. But I found that I think Dan Curtis and the writers tended to be pretty on the nose in terms of a lot of the lore that they would incorporate into Dark Shadows for like, and I think they picked the stuff that was most interesting a lot of the time mm-hmm. and would most play to the storylines that they were trying to tell. You know, as a writer, that's one of the things you try to do. You know, it's like mm-hmm. in Doctor Cushing, there's a a major werewolf character, and he's got pieces from the Wolfman, and he's got pieces from you know other other werewolf sources, Dark Shadows certainly, and then there's there's pieces that were like, well. Here's my here's my little twist that maybe you never thought of before. Yeah, yeah. And that's basically what all writers do all the time is you seldom do you create anything wholly out of your imaginations or stuff unless you're some kind of a Lovecraftian genius that creates all this <laughs> these strange things that no one seems to have ever thought of before. Sure. But most of us find stuff in the folklore and we find stuff in, in other things we've admired and we take that and we synthesize it into what works for us in the story that we're doing. And and clearly Dan and the writers uh, being majorly Sam Hall and Gordon Russell, I think at this point, it's Violet Wells. No, she's a little later. She comes when 1897 rolls around. Right. She had been I think go- we're at the kind of the tail end of Ron Sprout here. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, mm-hmm. but clearly Gordon and Sam and Dan are kind of all on the same page and synthesizing this stuff and moving right. it forward. Not to not to cut Ron Sprout to you know not to be too cruel no, to him at all. No, no, I know <laughs> Danny Horn in his blog is not a big enthusiast for, for Ron Sprobe. Right. Well, and he's my least favorite of the Dark Shadows writers, mm-hmm. I think, in mm-hmm. in, some, in a lot of ways. He I wanted, mean, he was, there was a conflict between him and Sam Hall. Like, Sam Hall really wanted to push it, you know, more into, like, fully embracing all the 
craziness. And Ron Sprout wanted to kind of dial it back, do a lot of repeating for people who may have missed an episode. And uh, I think it became like, right. a, well, if you miss an episode, tough, you know, like right. you got to you got to watch. And God you know? bless Ron, because that's probably the reason that I I could see sporadic episodes at the beginning of the Quentin and the Werewolf storyline and feel like I missed nothing when they finally brought it to where I could see it in the afternoons. I mean, I felt, <laughs> it's funny, re-watching the series recently, I was like, God, I didn't see this, I didn't see this. I just got really lucky in the episodes that I did see. <laughs> and then they started broadcasting it when I could see everything. You know, it was like there was a two-month period of <laughs> transition there for me, yeah. where somehow I was always sick or with the holidays or whatever, when the werewolf is on. When yeah. was on. <laughs> and I love, I love how they built up the appearance of the werewolf because it's only hinted at it for like you're not exactly sure what's happening i mean i think if you probably figure it out you know before it happens but chris chains himself up in the uh gets this the hotel room at the inn mr wells comes back the innkeeper played by conrad bain from the very early episodes the pre-barnabas episodes i mean he was you know a day player in a couple of episodes early on and here he is back again it's like two years later it's so amazing that they actually brought him back to get killed by the right. werewolf, you know, and, the, and one of the rare kind of gruesome scenes you see on Dark, because Dark Shadows didn't do a whole lot of gore. Uh, Dan Curtis wasn't a big fan of gore. I'm not either. I think gore kills the gothic mood if you overdo gore. I think I, I tend to agree with you, too. I'm not a yeah. huge gore fan. Yeah, I think hints of it are fine, but like a little like a splash of blood, but instead of like buckets of blood. But um you see the, the innkeepers mauled and kind of shredded up. And uh, and then we Elizabeth hears an animal in the woods growling and she sees it and she says it's wearing the clothes of a man. And then we finally get to see Chris Jennings finally transform into the werewolf with a great Vinny Lascalzo makeup. Uh, but he crashes through that window in the blue whale, as you described, with the waitress killing the waitress. Oh, my God. That's just such a dynamic scene with jumping through that window in the blue whale was such, such an explosive, memorable scene on the show. Like, rarely did you see things like that in Dark Shadows. That took it to another level. You didn't level. see that kind of stuff in, in daytime television at all. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh and so as this continues, you know, we see Chris Jennings has a young sister. The parents are, are have died. Her brother, Tom, who she was living with, has died. So she's at Wincliffe. She's a very troubled young girl, played by Denise Nickerson, who, uh, of course, went on to great fame as Violet Beauregard in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yep, God love her. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, she passed, she passed away a few years ago. I was so sad when I when I heard and that. She's, you know, she's kind of my age, too. It's just like, what? Yeah. Oh, I hate to use the, lose the, the young ones here. I yeah. still think of myself as young, even though, yes, I saw Dark Shadows <laughs> its original run for at least half the series. So. <laughs> hey, that's still young. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, so we have Amy. She, she's a trouble, very troubled. Denise Nickerson was so good at playing this haunted young child, uh, very spooky, strange, uh, sad. She and David Hennessy really work well oh, together. It's yes. Like she's yes. clearly troubled, and we know he's been troubled ever since yeah. the start of the series. And those, yeah. when I was a kid... Those kids gave me the creeps. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> they yeah. gave me the creeps with their haunt, this haunted telephone thing and all that. Just suddenly they're talking to people that aren't there. And I have to say, I, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm, you know, when I rewatch the Gerard stuff, I'll feel differently. But rewatching the Quentin stuff recently, Quentin is this, I think, the scariest ghost ever on Dark Shadows. He's Quentin was scary. Menacing. Scary, played by the wonderful, legendary David Selby. Uh, huge addition to Dark Shadows. I mean, you had 
Barnabas, you had Julia came in, you had Angelique and Quentin, I think is not, I think he for sure is the next big introduction into the show. Quentin Collins, the ghost. When I was a kid, I've talked about Barnabas scaring me. I'd had nightmares about Barnabas. I also had nightmares about Quentin Collins. He was terrifying. When I was a kid watching that the show, I think it was the fact that he imposed his will in such a sinister way on these children through the use of that very eerie 19th century music that would possess them. They would lose their own sense of self. And And the telephone too. And the telephone, yeah. And you would never hear him. One of the things that I think makes him super creepy when Quentin shows up is you never know when he's going to suddenly, they're going to hit a spotlight in the back of the room somewhere. And there he's going to be, which is always kind of like, whoa. Totally. But also the fact that he never speaks. Yes. You hear his laughter maybe sometimes, but he never talks. You never hear him say anything. He, He only laughs. And Beth only cries. Yes. That yes. makes them creepier. Creepier. Yeah. And his and he has such an iconic look as well with the frock coat and those sideburns, the mutton chop sideburns and the the sort of the the pale ghostly look to him. And Beth, this weeping, sad spirit. I and the this, lighting. They're always oh. really, really good with the lighting on on Quentin the ghost. It's yeah. always just super eerie. Yes. You know, it's, sometimes people say that Dark Shadows is just a soap opera, but there's almost nothing that Dark Shadows was doing by this time that looks anything like another soap opera from the era. No, it's a soap opera in, in structure only in terms of that it da- aired daily uh, and it was right. a serialized narrative. But by but that it logic, moves when yeah. Ron Sprout's not writing it, it moves kind of at the speed of light, too. Maybe early on you could miss an episode, but people would say... Mm-hmm. It takes Dark Shadows is so slow. It's like, what are you watching, dude? Have you ever seen an actual soap opera? You know, the actual soap opera is it takes a whole week to get to the next story point. And Dark Shadows, yeah. you were having story points every day, sometimes a couple in one episode. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. But they had they had that going for them. And then they had this brilliant the people who were working there were doing stuff with lighting that just wasn't being done on other soap operas. Mm-hmm. And sure. they were trying new ways to show the ghosts and to show the supernatural elements. And they got better and better as they went. Sure, maybe early on you saw the, the plastic seam on the skeleton's head or something. But as they went along, everybody improved. Everyone, It's one of those things when you're working in that kind of a situation where it's all very high pressure and you all have to kind of be together. One of the wonderful things that happens is that everybody ups everybody else's game. So suddenly you're, you know, the actors are getting better and the lighting guys are getting better and the camera technicians are getting better and the guy doing special effects getting better. And I really feel like, you know, having just watched this segment again fairly recently, it's a big step up in the production from even the stuff that they were doing uh, just the, you know, in the Adam storyline just before it. You can tell too that I think Dan Curtis was a big fan of the turn of the screw and the, the innocence, the, the stage adaptation and the, the film adaptation, as right. well, uh, which there are a lot of things, things you will see from the innocence that will make their way into this. You know, the whole scene with, uh, where it was Deborah Kerr as the governess and Peter Wingard as the ghost of Peter Quint, who Quentin was named inspired. The name was inspired by Peter Quint. That whole scene with Miles standing in front of the window and Peter Quint laughing 
behind Miles and Miles laughing. And they did something similar with David where David's on the bed and he's laughing and you hear Quentin laughing in the house. Like just that parallel of the two of them laughing, like they've become synonymous with each other. David is fully corrupted now by, by Quentin. It's such a disturbing and eerie ghost. It's some people dislike the turn of the screw. I don't understand those people. I think the turn of the screw. <laughs> no, I, uh, the turn of the screw is great. The big difference, though, is Miss Jessel. Miss Jessel in the turn of the screw and in the Innocence is much more malignant. There, she's evil. There's something evil about Miss Jessel. Beth is not, though. There's something just sad about Beth. Right. Terry Crawford. Beth is tragic. Yeah, Beth is tragic. Terry Crawford was very sad. When they redid the turn of the screw with Gerard and Daphne, I felt Daphne was a li- at least a little closer to Miss Jessel. You don't know where Daphne's loyalties lie. She can be a little sinister, but right. even, even then, she's not all the way at Miss Jessel level. But Quentin is fully at the Peter Quint level of malignancy and corruption. He is bad news and is a huge uh, introduction into the show with Quint. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, and quickly became fascinating to the fans. And I, it's, it's hard to remember so long ago, I think when he is the ghost, Quentin, Mm -hmm. he's just scary. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember if it, took until we actually get to see him in the flesh for him to become kind of, you know, a fan favorite yes. for him to become really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a big credit to David Selby too, mm-hmm. that, that again, this character was one of the, like Barnabas, he was one of these 13 week wonders. Mm-hmm. We're going to have this guy in and he's going to stay there for 13 wins, weeks and I'll get rid of him and, on we'll go. It was to give Jonathan Frid a break because Jonathan Frid was really overworked. I mean, he would he was in tons of episodes and had these very lengthy, you know, monologues and lots of dialogue. It, it was very difficult for him. Uh, right. So bringing in another uh, another character like that to have another sort of uh, monster, I guess, uh, to to sort of help carry the load was. Uh, a, a godsend to him, you know, and I think David Selby was actually, they did it recently, did a Zoom uh, interview with uh, several of the actors from Dark Shadows to, to talk about the Dark Shadows, the Jonathan Frid documentary, and th- that was discussed, you know, and Jonathan was great, actually grateful to David Selby for kind of helping to carry the load. The character definitely took off big time in 1897 when we finally right. got to hear him speak, but I think even Prior to that, there was definitely that there was a mystique there and an intrigue about this ghost uh, who, right. who didn't speak. It was like you said, I mean, just David Selby's presence and his performance in the role uh, really made you believe that this was an evil specter who was set loose now in Collinwood. And you're Col- tempted to say that 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 they got lucky in the casting, but Dark Shadows got lucky in their casting so many times. Clearly, not a lot of what luck was involved. Clearly, they actually had a really good sense of who yeah. to cast and what I, roles. Um, I will say this too. You can, I think with Quentin too, with Quentin's ghost, even though he doesn't talk and he is sinister, there is still a charm to him. He's charismatic. He um, is. I mean, he's clearly very- And he's sexy. He's, he's sexy. He's a sexy ghost. You yes. can get that. And yeah. you get that connection between him and Beth, that there's something something sexual going on between these two yes. that they're somehow linked. Even yeah. if you haven't seen Turn of the seen or read Turn of the Screw mm-hmm. without any context, just the way that the, the writers set them up, you know mm-hmm. that they're connected. You know that there's some kind of romantic slash sexual connection to them. And 
as you said, David's a very charismatic guy and he could, yeah. he could just stand there in sinister lighting and give you a kind of a little, little cock of his head, a little look of his eyes, a little yeah. slight smirk. And, you know, you could hear the, the women melting all across America. <laughs> sure, sure. But he also... it, more than women, probably. But yeah. Those <laughs> yeah. Melting all across America. Well, but there, he was also in, in the sense that you can see not, I'm not only talking about sexy, but also you can see how this character could be an influence on the children. Like he would sway the children and impose his will on them to have them do things for him and play the game, which becomes a recurring thing where right. it's initially it's fun for David and Amy to play the, the game. And David Hennessy is also a great actor who doesn't get enough credit. He, he wasn't, he was kind of on the back burner a bit during the Adam storyline. He was here and there, you'd see him, but here he's really back and with Amy and they're the Miles and Flora characters. And initially they're having fun talking to this ghost uh, and seeing, seeing Quentin and Beth and let's go see. And Quentin making and the adults squirm. Yes. As, yeah. Which is something that, you know, kids like to do. Kids yes. like to make adults squirm. Maybe, maybe, you know, it's like, it's been a while since my kids grew up, but back, back then it was like, yeah, these kids are, so they're sticking it to the man. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So they're having fun with it, but it becomes progressively more disturbing what and dangerous and dangerous the things that that things that they're doing they they string a, a wire across the stairs to try to kill roger uh david's second murder attempt on roger i might add uh try right. to trying to kill roger uh eventually quentin tries to get david to poison chris jennings for whatever reason we don't know and quentin ends up doing it himself because he's gaining in power uh quentin and beth are now starting to be able to leave this room because they were they found Quentin's bedroom uh, in this Victorian bedroom with the wood, the wallpaper, the Victorian wallpaper. And there's a skeleton there. Uh, this was the, a very creepy sequence to yes. me when I was a kid that they found they're in a disused wing of the, the Collins mansion, the West Wing. Right. And mm, yeah. they found a disused room. And in the disused room, there's a secret panel. But it's not a big one like the one they've got in the library. It's yeah. a tiny yeah. little panel that they have to crawl through. And they come into this room that's got a skeleton in there yeah with the with the old telephone too as i remember there's yeah. the old telephone they've been talking to to him through the other end is in that room or something it's just yeah, ugh, yeah. it's very creepy yeah very, and that's very. been there that skeleton's been there for you know decades and nobody knew about it so they get they get rid of the skeleton um as things get start to get worse here uh Elizabeth contacts Professor Stokes. Things, some, something's going on here. Professor Stokes thinks that there's an evil presence in the house. Wonderful Thayer David as Professor T. Elliot. I, I was just going to say how how much I love Thayer David as Professor Stokes. Oh, I mean, his other roles that he's played are really good because all of the actors on this are yeah. great actors. Yeah. And so when I say he's a great actor, in some ways it's like, well, yeah, they all are. They all are. <laughs> amazing. But that Professor Stokes role is something that, well, it certainly has stuck with me as who would you want to be in Dark Shadows? I yeah. want to be Professor Stokes. He's, he's, he's the one he's, that knows all the stuff 
and yeah. never actually <laughs> never gets bitten by the vampires. Nothing, right. He's, he's got the, enough power that nothing terrible ever happens to him. Yeah, well, he's the Van, he's the Van Helsing analog. Yeah, I mean, exactly. he really is, and he's he's just sensational in the role. But he, he you know he brings in Madame Findlay, a friend of his who is a psychic medium, and uh, Madame Findlay is killed by Quentin. Quentin is able to sort of, and a lot of the ghosts and dark shadows, the evil, powerful ghosts, seem to be able to sort of induce heart attacks in people. This is they die of heart failure. Uh, and Gerard is able to do this as well later on. Um, Madame Finley dies. This storyline just continues to brew. Meanwhile, Chris Jennings, uh, they, there's another seance that's held uh, to contact the spirit of, uh, of Jeff Clark, uh, because there's... Uh, uh, I'm going. We're going to cover this in the next episode with, uh, with uh, another guest of mine. We're going to talk about the uh, 1790 return to 1796. But they're trying to contact uh, Jeff Clark slash Peter Bradford, and we get the first sort of appearance by Magda, the gypsy who speaks through Carolyn and speaks of this curse of a curse. And Chris Jennings right. becomes very uncomfortable and stops the seance. Um, as we're as we're going along, the Chris and Quentin. Are becoming there's something there's some connection between them that we don't know about yet but they're starting to kind of i think they were already you know planning like how are we going to connect these two storylines which is yeah i think so cool. uh, clearly they they had some some inkling that yeah. the, the, that they were going to connect this two storylines and we're not we're not actually covering that here today right. but it's it's one of the things that I, makes this this series, the what I always think of as the original Quentin series, which starts with his ghost and ends with the end of the, I think it's 1897, right? Mm -hmm. And ends with the end of that 1897 thing. I think of that as the golden age of Dark Shadows. I know some yeah. people might argue the first Barnabas storyline. And I, I could see that to some extent because obviously Barnabas is really an important character. But at this point, it seems like they're really firing all on all cylinders and they haven't gotten burned out yet. They were heading for the for the for the peak here because when when 1897 happened that's when the story uh the the ratings were at their highest. Uh right. and Barnabas ignited the phenomenon and it just continued to grow uh as it, as it went on. I I always say the the three must watch storylines. I mean everybody should watch every episode of Dark Shadows. Absolutely. And the two movies, too. Don't worry about the Johnny Depp movie. You can watch the other. You can watch that. <laughs> Don't watch that. But the show, if you're going to watch the storylines to watch, definitely. The introduction of Barnabas, 1795 and 1897. And I would. Yeah, you. this is connected to 18. It's the prelude to 1897. Right, really. Exactly. So, as so, far as I'm concerned, they're all one thing. And yeah. I was I was actually surprised when like, oh, you don't want to talk about the 1897 part. Yeah, that's a that's a lot. <laughs> that's a big that's and a part big, of me was like. Phew, because I haven't gotten through those in my current watch yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I I do have I do have a guest lined up who's all about eighteen ninety seven. We're going to be doing that, which uh, is awesome because it's yeah. a, it is the best time of the show for me. And I I got lucky. I started right at the at the prelude to it, mm -hmm. and then yeah. followed it all the way through the end. So uh, Joe Haskell sees his cousin Chris transform into a werewolf. Joe's been through hell. I feel so bad for Joe and Maggie because they're such. Oh, me too. They're such nice people. They're, they were such a nice couple. And the presence of the supernatural in Collinsport has completely destroyed their relationship and destroys Joe as a person. And later, right. Ma Maggie as well, later, uh, 
they both end up at Wincliffe at, right. uh, in the sanitarium. They end up in the insane asylum. Joe sees his cousin transform. He just becomes unhinged. He start, He has visions of the werewolf and Tom as a vampire. He's done. What a sad fate for the character, but as as a writer and as a series, you know, series creator, you you know that sometimes your actors are going to want to leave you, and it's a question of what kind of send off you want to give them. At least in in his case, we didn't they didn't kill him. Yeah. yeah. Which I always, as a writer, I'm always disappointed when the writers of a series just go in and cavalierly kill a mm-hmm. longtime character. Great. And it's like. Well, why'd you do that? You didn't need to do that. We don't need to have people die. People die in real life all the time, but we don't need to have that always mirrored in our art. We can we can have people go off and, and go to Wincliffe, or yeah. we can have people move. I mean, you know, the, the amount of people that you lose as friends because they moved across the country yeah. is happily much more than people that are suddenly killed by werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, and it, it does. It leaves the door open. I mean, sadly, he never did return to the show as, as Joe or Nathan Forbes, but it does leave the door open for future stories. And they did actually in the, those big Finnish audios, they had Maggie marry Joe Haskell. She became Mag- Maggie Haskell. And I think they even used a, a clip of Joel Crothers in one of those, his voice, you know, in one of those episodes. Yeah, because we lost him sadly early during the AIDS yeah, yeah. epidemic, I think. Uh, Awful. In the 80s, yeah, very sad. Awful so, stuff. So, yeah, yeah. but he was a, a terrific actor and a, yeah. a really nice, normal presence on the show. Of yeah. course, when I was watching it at the time, I hadn't seen him that much. Is You know, coming in when I did, Maggie was always the governess, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she does, this is where about where she comes in as the governess, because we have, she's lost her father, Sam Evans, who who died uh, after being injured by Adam. Uh, she's lost Joe now. And so she's living alone in her, in this cottage and Elizabeth invites her. Uh, well, Elizabeth, we're, we're now at the end of the Elizabeth premature burial storyline because they were right. doing that storyline where she's, she's buried alive and she has this mausoleum built and she has a bell where she'll ring the bell if if she moves and uh it's fortuitous in a way that carolyn is attacked by the werewolf she's now dating chris jennings because carolyn always has to date the new monster on the show yeah, she has to date Car- the bad boy carolyn <laughs> has terrible taste in women she it's, always uh, did always she, will she, she's always yep so she's and i've dating. known people like that i've known yeah. it's like oh, you're dating this guy no, yeah no, right, no. right. Uh, but she's she, he sees the and he's a nice guy. Chris is a nice guy, but he's he's so haunted and troubled. He's, he says this curse. He sees the pentagram on her face uh, and he knows she's going to be the next victim. And he does transform and he he attacks her in the mausoleum, which is a great scene where the werewolf is, you know, trying to desperately to get into the into the mausoleum, breaks into the mausoleum. Fortunately, she has this silver bracelet, this big cuff silver bracelet. And they, I love every time when they do this, when they're somebody's brandishing silver, the light just hits it and. In a certain way, and then they light the werewolf's eyes, Alex Stevens' eyes, they just go wide. Or whenever he looks at somebody brandishing like a, a pentagram of protection, like a silver pentagram, his eyes just go really wide, and you can see the the terror uh, in his eyes. Yep. This metal of of purity that's that can repel this supernatural being. It's the one thing that works against the werewolf. And then Barnabas comes in. He has the silver headed cane. Of course, another tie into to the Wolf Man with the silver headed cane. Silver headed wolf cane. Yes, the silver-headed wolf cane. I mean, perfect. And at the time he they introduced Barnabas, they didn't know they were going to have werewolves in the show, but it worked out pretty well. Right, yeah. Uh, Suddenly you've got your 
your main <laughs> character who is not a vampire at this point in the story. Yes, line, yes. Has exactly. the one thing that can actually defend people from the werewolf, and that's his silver-headed wolf can. Yes, yes. That he's always carried, which is yeah. just one of the coolest props ever, too. Oh, totally. It really is. I have one. I, I got one years ago from a fanzine that somebody was selling the the actual company, you know, that make right. the canes. I have a near approximation of it. Mm-hmm. It's not quite right, but it's yeah. it, but it costs about forty dollars as opposed to like four hundred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was expensive to buy that. I had to pay in installments. I remember through somebody kindly in the back pages of one of the Dark Shadows fanzines, let me send in you know a few bucks every every month, and eventually they said right. I still and I still have it. The, the German that's silver. awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, so. Okay, so Barnabas, you know, beats the werewolf with the cane. Barnabas and, and Julia eventually do figure out that Chris Jennings, Barnabas figures out it's a werewolf, and he figures out that it's Chris Jennings is the werewolf. And he feels kinship with him. Like Barnabas is cured, quote, quote unquote, cured at this point, uh, but he is not a vampire now. He, of course, he will return to, to that state down the road, but he feels sympathy for Chris Jennings. And there's, there's sort of a bond there that forms. He, he's sent as a kindred spirit in him and wants to help him. And that's really kind of touching. I think it's really terrific at this point in the storyline that Louis Edmonds must have been off doing somewhere. Joan Bennett was in her crypt. And there's a, a point of time during this, this part of the storyline where Barnabas is, he's the head of the household. Yeah. It's like the other grownups, Carolyn's too young. The other grownups have left him in charge. It's yeah. like, you know, he's a vampire, right? Well, of course, they don't know he's a vampire. And he's yeah. not a vampire right now. But there's some some wonderful scenes with him kind of acting as the head of the family, the yes. head of Colin's family yeah. that you don't normally get. And him both trying to protect the household and trying to help Chris, who he and Julia have cleverly figured out. Can I talk about Barnabas and Julia? You know, as I've gotten older, I've read a lot of stuff about Julia being in love with Barnabas, and obviously they played that angle up in in the Depp movie. And as a kid, I never really saw it. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I kind of still don't in a lot of ways. Maybe as I go even further into my current rewatch, I'll go, oh yeah, she's macking on him totally. <laughs> but as a kid, I thought, these two are just best friends. You know, it's like his best friend has happens to be this wacky mad scientist doctor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he, he, he yeah. treats her like a best friend. He does. <laughs> he does. She, I think she, I mean, she, there are references throughout this year. She has, I mean, she doesn't often say it, but she does have those feelings for Barnabas, but he does not reciprocate those feelings. And I don't think he ever will. I know a lot of fans do the the shipping or whatever, you know, right? And, yeah, no, and for no, years they've no. done that. And it's like, I, I see them also as best friends. They're best friends, but I think Julia would have liked more than. I think I, I can see that. I can see that mm-hmm. maybe she wanted more, but at first to me, she, he was a science experiment for her. Yes. Totally. And then she became kind of charmed with him. And maybe at some point there, she was thinking, well, maybe if I cure him, he'll do something for me. But mm-hmm. by this point, maybe there's still some undercurrent and they, they love each other for sure. Yeah, he loves her as much as he can love anyone that is not a reincarnation of Josette. They love each other, but I, I don't think they love each. She loves him in a in a I want to be a couple with you way. I think mm-hmm. they love each other in, in kind of a family way. It's mm-hmm. like they bonded through his trials, and now they are 
the two of them are a family within this larger family. Right. They're the and ones. I love that. Yeah, definitely. And then later on, I think, you know, well, Willie is kind of part of that group. And, and Willie is part. He's like the third member of their yeah. micro family within the family. Sure. And then I will add Quentin to that later, too. You know, when when we come back from 1897, Quentin then joins the crew and he's he's part of that game right. as well, I think. But Quentin, well, well, we'll talk about that later. Um so uh, you, Julia reluctantly agrees to try to help Chris. She starts doing all this research into lycanthropy. We get a little bit more information about how one becomes a werewolf. It could be a curse. It could be if you're bitten by a werewolf and you live. They mentioned some of that, but uh, of course we'll learn it was a curse that was passed down through the generations. Um, Maggie's invited by Elizabeth to be a gover- the governess at Collinwood. And we see this dynamic develop now with Again, another parallel to Turn of the Screw. Maggie becomes the governess in the in the novel, and uh, Mrs. Johnson comes to the fore once again. The wonderful Clarice Blackburn as the Mrs. Gross character. So Maggie and Mrs. Johnson are the ones who start to suspect something bad is happening to the kids. Like they right. know something is up. Mrs. Johnson actually ends up seeing Quentin at one point. People won't believe Miss Poor Mrs. Johnson, uh, and it's yeah, it's, it's 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 really it's really fun. But Maggie starts to believe it because she starts to see signs of what's happening with the children. They're acting very strange. It's interesting. Quentin doesn't, you know, he's not happy with Maggie kind of being on on to him. So he's having the kids play. Amy is even starting to get a little worried because Quentin is getting worse and david is kind of going with it still and do- right. they're kind like- of okay when it's when it seems like they're kind of pranks or they're getting mm-hmm. back at somebody when they start picking on maggie then they the kids start to kind of go well wait a minute i think it's because everyone maggie. loves maggie yeah I mean, maggie <laughs> if they want to scott was one of the first women i ever fell in love with right uh-huh. She's <laughs> so wonderful in the yeah. show yeah. Um, as an act, you know, her acting is just fabulous and stuff. And she's, it's like the, she's the normal person. Yeah. She amid is. All, all of this, you yeah. know, even though she's a governess, which is not something I really understood as a kid. I'm like, what is this? Okay. She's <laughs> like their living teacher. I get it. Okay. Sure. It never, sure. never happened anywhere I knew, but sure. okay. I could go with it. All the other people are kind of cursed and haunted, including Roger and Elizabeth, right. And the kids <laughs> and Clarice Blackburn, you know, Mrs. Johnson works for them. So she's, mm-hmm. but Maggie's like, she's the normal person. Yeah. She's the normal one. She's taken over what we now know is, you know, the Victoria Winters role. She's the normal one amid all these crazy people. Right. Because of course, are, Victoria has now been sucked into the past and she and is, just in time, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, Alexandra Moltke, of course, had left the show and was replaced by Betsy Durkin uh, for, for a short time. And then who will then be replaced by Carolyn Groves during a side trip and a storyline within a storyline. They kind of do the side trip to 1795. Right. But uh, the kids start, you know, they do the Mr. Juggins, the, the the mannequin to to make Maggie look like she's she's crazy. David has gotten pretty bad. Like, I think even Amy is like, David, you're acting just like Quentin, like he's being really getting right. worse. He does the whole I do not like the Dr. Fell, the reason why I cannot tell, you know, the, all of that. Stuff. But this I know him very well. Like, <laughs> like the Dr. Fell. Oh, it's so. See, so, I remember that from when I was a kid. That was creepy then. It's yeah, creepy now. Isn't it? Is it same, same reaction? I was like, oh, that is so creepy. And then I kept saying it, too. I was like, right, was, exactly. Was, um, but uh, Beth, the spirit of Beth is now also 
concerned because Quentin is becoming more, more evil. His, his actions are more evil. She leads, when he, especially when he tries to kill Chris and all this, uh, she leads Chris to this grave, an unmarked grave. Chris and Barnabas dig it up. It's a skeleton of a baby. And there's a pentagram, again, linking it to, to the werewolf and linking what is, there was a werewolf at Collinwood, they deduce at some point in the past. Uh, Quentin doesn't like any of this. The, this is going on. Barnabas contacts the, the people who made this was Braithwaite and son. And it was Ezra Braithwaite, who was a young man at the time, who was played by Abe Vagoda, who seemed to have always played old men, no matter was what. Gonna, he, he was never young. <laughs> never, never. It's like he was, he was always old. Young. He just was born old. Um, and he plays Ezra Bra- Braithwaite in a memorable scene where Quentin, you know, he can't see him with his, with his glasses on. And then he puts his, oh, I know you, you're Quentin Collins. David Selby's smiling, Quentin smiling and naughty. It's just such a great scene because he's just, he's eating it up. That's what I mean. Like there's a charm to Quentin, even though he's yes. evil. It's kind of like, he's really kind of enjoying this whole thing. I'm smiling and now I'm going to kill you. Yes. Yeah. You don't, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't see Gerard smile to me. Gerard's always sneering. Like Quentin, Quentin has that big grin right. on his face. Uh, yeah, then he kills Ezra Braithwaite. Um, he tries to, he attempts, Quentin attempts to strangle Maggie. David is pushing back. Quentin sets David's arm, makes David think his arm is on fire and it actually manifests on his arm. Yep. Uh, you know, really some dark stuff is starting to happen. He, more darker stuff is starting to Quentin, happen. Quentin is the master of supernatural evil powers. Now that, now that Nicholas Blair is gone, yeah. Quentin is, is exhibiting his black magic prowess. Yeah. Now, what did you? What were your thoughts as things were kind of evolving here, the heating up, so to? It just got creepier and creepier, and it's like you, you kind of as a you know a kid that's relatively the same age as these children, a little bit younger, you kind of understand. Hey, we found this ghost. He's our secret friend. We can talk to him on the telephone. We can mm-hmm. kind of play some pranks on the adults. If and when the adults are not so nice to us, we've got this way of getting back. You can kind of understand the the kids yeah. falling into it. Yeah, but at the same time, as a viewer, you're like, well, maybe this is not such a good idea. Maybe this is not going to just stop yeah. with harmless pranks. And the the escalation there was, I mean, that's one of the reasons I said earlier, and I I still believe this is true. I, Quentin is the scariest ghost that was ever on the show mm-hmm. because he did have that charm, and you could see following into his orbit. Yeah. And once you were in his orbit. You know, there's several places where David's like, "Okay, I'm getting out. I'm getting out, and I'm getting out, and I'm out now. And oh, I'm not out anymore." Yeah, and I love that the writers actually carried this over when they did the flashback to Quentin because he was like that with Jameson too. He was always trying to get Jameson to do horrible stuff for him to help as his his favorite uncle Quentin. He'd right. say, you know, help me in this black magic ritual to harm somebody. Like he would use James. Don't worry, we're just going to scare him a <laughs> it's little. It's just a game. It's fun. You know, they tie it in and they didn't, I, I, this is the writer, the writers were really firing on all cylinders here. Like they were really connecting things. Yeah, Gordon and Sam were doing a fabulous job. Can I, can I yeah. digress just for a moment to oh, talk about yeah. Gordon Russell? Sure. I don't know a lot about Gordon Russell. I'm, I'm one of these people that I, I tend to enjoy art for what it is and don't worry too much about the people behind it a lot of the times you know it's mm-hmm. like it took me forever even as a kid to learn who all the beatles were it was like oh it's the <laughs> beatles they make this music and i don't know who their names are um gordon <laughs> russell i think is not maybe talked about enough as a great dark shadows writer because mm-hmm. i know you know sam was kind of the wild and woolly one goal to russell always seems to me like he is 
he's the steady hand on the wheel. He's the backbone. The the backbone of it, the steady progress. I have a a weird game that I play with myself still because I, you know, it takes so long to watch as, as the Dark Shadows series. You forget things as you go along. I have a game where I watch an episode and then I try just by watching the episode, I try to figure out who wrote the episode. Yep. Mm hmm. And almost always the episodes where I go, well, that was really cool. That was a good story turning point. Almost all of those episodes uh, at this point are being written by Gordon Russell. Mm -hmm. He's like, he's like Sam Hall, but under control in a way. And Mm -hmm. it's always fascinating to me to watch them. And then to the writer game is as a writer, (laughs) I think it's kind of a fun game to play. It may seem insane to anyone else to go, Okay, well, the plot advanced here in an interesting way. We didn't have too many speeches that the actors didn't say. It's kind of a story turning point. So I'm thinking maybe Gordon Russell did this as opposed to, you know, there there may be a little wordy, but there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of interior monologue. That's problem. And things are kind of crazy. That's Sam. (laughs) So I love Gordon Russell and he and Sam. I was just watching the the transition between this storyline in the 1897 storyline and usually the writers will write two days of episodes back to back and then there's another writer for two days and then and then they rotate through the usually there were three writers at least and so there'd be two by gordon two by sam two by ron or whoever the rotation is but when you get to the transition between these two this storyline and the the 1897 storyline, that critical piece, there's a point where Gordon Russell likes writes like four or five in a row and Sam writes four or five in a row. Mm-hmm. And, and, we had, clearly, and then we had Violet Wells as well. And Violet and, comes in at that point. And at that point, because she had been ghostwriting some of Gordon's scripts too. Right. That, that's how they knew each other. So she, he brought her in and introduced her to Dan Curtis and she came in. And I think I agree when that, when that was 1897 and they were the three of them, I think together were a really great team. Uh, right. There. And, and then that's Joel, why if you, if you read my Frost Harrow series, there are people named after this. Oh, really? Oh, that's <laughs> great. Oh, that's I, I've named characters after dark shadows characters <laughs> for a long time, but those, there are those three writers are called out as part of the ongoing back backstory usually they're like a servant or someone that uh-huh. you know they're not one of the main frost hero characters yeah. but they're all in there you'll see just little tributes to them sensational oh great yeah. That's and i've so stuck cool. the words dark shadows into so many of my books <laughs> <laughs> it'll, just, it'll just be a casual and you know he peered into the dark shadows of the corner. perfect oh perfect it, i do that constantly i love it um, i love as it as <laughs> a tip of the hat for what is the, the most influential television show of my life it's, awesome. it's my favorite tv show ever wonderful we didn't mention that before it's my favorite tv show i love this awesome. even more than original star trek <laughs> awesome well me too be safe so uh, gordon russell and, yes. and sam are and ron is leaving the the series yeah. at this point yeah and the two of them are really they're really clicking and yeah. with violet as you said violet helping you know being a, a co-writer or ghostwriter with with sure. gordon too sure. and and it shows it's yeah. like suddenly Suddenly, the the Adam storyline was a hot mess, and suddenly we're oh, by I the li- end I of li- this. I liked the Adam storyline. I just think it could have been a, a little tighter, uh, but I did enjoy it. I think it had the kind of misfortune of being sandwiched in between really, really good storylines, and it's right. 
two of the great storylines. And not, but I enjoy it. I think Ad the Adam storyline is really fun to watch. There's a lot of great stuff in it. Yeah. But it, as you said, it's not very tight. And yeah. toward the end, it's like really gets very, it gets really sloppy kind yeah. of near the end. Yeah. Like, well, the way they kind of got rid of Adam was just really an afterthought almost. It was like, he's been a major, the major character for like seven or eight months here. It's, he deserved a better send off than that. But yeah, we're going to just go to the other room for a while and I'll, <laughs> I'll work this out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Sorry, Adam, never going to see you again. Yeah, bye. <laughs> Hope you enjoy your time there with Ricky Cunningham's older brother. Uh, so we have, uh, we're heading toward the end. Things are heating up for Chris Jennings too, because uh, Sabrina Stewart and Ned Stewart have appeared. Uh, Roger Davis is back as the very shouty Ned Stewart and his sister, who is catatonic, played by Lisa Richards, white hair, in a wheelchair, can't speak, and she used to date Chris Jennings. So, of course, we learned she is the first person who saw him transform into a werewolf and survived. She and that's walked- a great escalation of that storyline. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because it's, it's like, oh, my God, what did he do to her? What has happened? And right. it turns out he kind of didn't do anything to her. Yeah. But, he, you know, he just didn't keep her from seeing the werewolf, and that was enough to, to completely damage her. Yeah, Ned Stewart is determined to figure out what the heck happened, what Chris did. He thinks Chris did something to cause this. And Sabrina's gradually, you know, there's some gradual hints where she's she see she sees Barnabas's wolf head cane and she reacts with horror when she when she sees the wolf and just really great moments like that. And of course, Sabrina will continue to be when we return to the present after 1897 she's going to evolve as a character as well and reconnect with chris things with quentin are also also come to a head in one of the most chilling episodes i thought where the children finally can't anymore and they beg quentin to let them go and to leave them alone and Elizabeth is standing because Elizabeth doesn't believe Maggie this entire time. The Mr. Juggins, Quentin Mannequin, she thinks Maggie is kind of, you know, being hysterical and seeing things. But then she sees the kids just basically have a breakdown and circle her in the room, both talking over each other, saying, please, Quentin, stop. We don't want to do this. And we hate you. Stop. And it's just such an eerie, tragic scene. And then they pass out. And then, of course, there's this, the turn, the scene from The Innocence where David wakes up and it's just such a chilling scene where he says something very ominous to Elizabeth and then just starts laughing. And you hear Quentin in the house laughing as well. Oh, I lo- I lo- when people say, oh, Dark Shadows isn't scary, I think that is scary because it's that sort of it's terror versus horror. I don't need to see decapitations and, and guts. And that's not to me. That's not scary. That's just special effects that is the kind of thing that gets under your skin and sticks right. with you. Yeah, yeah, having, again, rewatched that fairly recently, it, it, sent, it sent chills down my mind. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I understand why, as, you know, as an eight or nine-year-old, that this was super <laughs> creepy to me. Yeah. Because yeah. it is, it's really creepy. And again, I yeah. go back to my original premise, that Quentin is the scariest ghost ever yeah. on the show. Sure. And it then- just is. They finally, yeah. And then they finally accept, okay, Collinwood is haunted. We got to get out of here. Barnabas invites them to come to the old house. They have to clear, clear, clear out of Collinwood because the music, Quentin's theme, which of course we didn't talk about too much, but that became 
a, an extremely popular standard. Uh, it became Shadows a standard. of the night. Yes, it's so <laughs> hilarious. Like you're in an elevator or something and you hear that come on and it's like, oh my, <laughs> I could not believe they're playing Quentin's theme right now. <laughs> right. It's like if all people only knew, of course, that, that song originated, that music originated in uh, Dan Curtis's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in the background. Right. It was a, just a background tune that Colbert uh, composed and then they used it in the show and it just became this huge hit. Right. Uh, billboard hit, you know. Um, um, but they clear out of the house. Roger says, we'll be back. Have no doubt of that. And then you see that beautiful panning shot of all the rooms as Quentin's malignant presence fills each room of Collinwood and that music with an echo effect added to it eerily fills up the entire house, sort of metaphorically showing us that Quentin has won and taken over the house. And then you see Quentin on the stairway laughing triumphantly. Top of the stairway, he's the master of the house. Yeah. Laughing triumphantly. Triumphantly. Oh, it's just a great scene. Great ending to the episode, too. Right. Oh, uh, Stokes, you know, prior to that, Stokes, I think I mentioned Stokes had tried to perform an exorcism, which failed uh, as well. Even Professor Stokes couldn't. One of the few times Professor Stokes, whatever he tried, didn't really work out. (laughs) It didn't work out because Quentin has become too powerful at this point. Even Stokes can't banish him from the house. Everyone's at the old house. Then things even get worse. Chris, who's been, they've been putting in the secret room in the mausoleum during the full moons, the phase, the phase of the full, on Dark Shadows, they say just the three nights of the full moon sometimes. Three nights of the, the full moon. Fa- three nights, which <laughs> we could say it's the phases of the full moon. Maybe we could, you know, so Chris. Well, I mean, technically the moon is only full one night, but. Yeah. watching it, looking at it as as someone that it's amazing how much more observant of the moon I've become since writing a werewolf character in Dr. Mm-hmm. Fishing and being mm-hmm. really tuned to it. Mm-hmm. The, there are you can tell when the moon is not quite full and when it's just past full, but yeah. they're so close. It's so that close. If you if you only see one of the three those three days, it's a full moon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Agreed, agreed. And I think other, I think other films have done that. Where it's, oh yeah, usually you go for three nights of a full moon, yeah. whether it's whether it's in film or whether it's Werewolf by Night. Yeah. Because oh, Werewolf by Night. Yes. Yeah. Because otherwise, you only get one night. Of yeah, werewolf yeah. And then yeah. you have to wait a month. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what fun is that? We gotta, we gotta. But anyway, that that even after the full moon, when the day comes. They open the secret room to the mausoleum, and Chris is still a werewolf. Still he has- a werewolf, and I'd actually forgotten that until my mm-hmm. my recent rewatch. I'd forgotten that his disease had progressed in such a way, He's, or yeah. Quentin's evil had suffused the area in such a way that the full moon is over, and he's still a werewolf locked there, in the secret room. I had a, I had a theory about that that I wrote. I wrote an article for the World of Dark Shadows years ago uh, for their fan page section where I had a theory. Quentin had been trying to kill Chris prior to this by poisoning him. And there's a line during the Leviathan storyline where Jeb Hawk says, if you kill Chris Jennings while he's in human form, if you kill somebody who's a werewolf while they're in human form, they will transform into the werewolf forever and not they turn be, back. They become a werewolf. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I had that in the back of my head for a long time. And I know there's some mythology 
that mm-hmm. says that too. But I'd forgotten that that's where it came from. I wonder if Quentin succeeded in killing Chris at some point, like maybe right before he transformed. I don't know. Like, it's just like, why didn't he turn back? They never really explained it. Maybe it is that the curse has progressed to the point where he's just a werewolf all the time. But I, I wonder. And it could be Quentin's, you know, and I, this hadn't occurred to me until we started talking. It could be that, as you said, Quentin's evil influence has expanded so much that it's brought out the evil influence in Chris too, which we find out later is related to Quentin as well. So you could say that. I wrote a a follow-up to a movie that ended up not happening in which there is a werewolf. And one of the things that I decided would be cool in the movie was if the longer you were a werewolf, the more time the moon would affect you and the more time you would spend as a werewolf. So, you know, you might start off with three days, but then as time went on, maybe it's five and maybe it's not just when the moon is up. Maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, for an hour or two after moonrise and before, or before moonrise and after moonset, but they never explain exactly why, but it's clear that things have gotten worse. Yeah. Something happened. Something took place there. My, my theory for a long time was that Quentin actually succeeded in killing Chris just That's prior not a to terrible idea. And, and then, because we don't know, and we don't see that, that story is not resolved at all before we come back from 1897. No, because when we're back from 1897, Chris is back in his human form and he's transforming during the full moons again. So things have righted themselves. Whatever happened in the past when Barnabas was back there changed things. Right, and we don't want to totally reveal that at this point. It'll be other stories and stuff. But yeah, I mean, clearly there's, that's why Barnabas goes into the past. The next stage here, so Barnabas and Maggie go, they're exploring uh, the West Wing and they find the I Ching wands in Quentin's room because Quentin was a dabbler in the occult, of course. So he had these mysterious I Ching wands and they take them away. David, it just gets worse. You know, things are David falls into a coma. Julia announces, examines David and says, unless something is done quickly, David is going to die by morning. Quentin wants to claim David because he looks just like Jameson. Right. Later learn is the one person Quentin ever loved was Jameson, his, his nephew. So there, we start to get some sympathy for Quentin later on, but yep. he sees Jameson in David and James, because Jameson rejected him, he wants he, he wants to take David in, into the spirit world and, and be with David and Collinwood, his like surrogate J- version of Jameson, his nephew. Uh, it's Once we see up. Quentin as a human being, a real person, we start to understand some of the motivations for his ghost. But mm-hmm. as a ghost, he's a totally malignant figure. There, He yeah. has n- no real redeeming qualities. Yeah, you, you know, he, He's going to kill the kids so that they will join him as ghosts. And Beth seems to not be able to stop this. Like she, Beth, he crossed, when he crosses the line, Beth tries to help the, the living, you know, by giving them clues as to things, but she, I think Quentin has attained a level of this evil malignant power that Beth can't counter at that point. She is clearly much less powerful than he is. Now, whether that's because of inherent sexism in the sixties or because he was, you know, a dabbler in the black arts when he was alive it's, it's, you know, it's hard to say looking back on it, but Mm -hmm. it's very clear. And it could just be that, you know, anger is can overpower goodness. Maybe or that's it. for a period of time fueled by that that desire for and we don't know what happened in the fully what happened in the original run of events because that skeleton in the room was probably was quentin originally because absolutely the, yeah you know and the theory i read that i think 
makes the most sense is that he was, when we see the clues in 1897, somebody, the first clue was somebody brought a silver bullet to Collinwood. And it was one of the things Clinton wished had never happened. Somebody probably killed him in the room. Like they, he probably turned into a werewolf and they shot him with a silver bullet in his room and killed him in the chair. And he fell into the chair and then they sealed, sealed him and up. Then they the sealed room. up the room in an and, Edgar Allan Poe-like twist, which we've done before already mm-hmm. on the series. Absolutely. Sure. sure. It's probably that's what I always figured. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. Or or he could have, you know, despite the werewolf thing, he could have killed himself after the terrible yeah. things he'd done. Sure. It's hard to say. And then, well, the, yeah. And we may never know. Sure. We may never know. I mean, obviously, Trask ends up in the room. Spoilers, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Collinwood must claim its victim for that room. It must, there must right. be someone who will die in that room. I forgot um, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I always look forward to the way they're going to kill the Trask character. I'm though, sorry. So. Oh, I shouldn't. I, I, I figured you. But, no, um, I've seen it. I just don't. Yeah, didn't. Yeah. It's like I yeah. just got to the point where he's been reintroduced and they burned down his building. He's going to come yeah. stay with him. And I'm like, <laughs> I forget how they kill him this time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's the he ends, he's the one who ends up in that chair. So David goes into a coma. Barnabas in a panic, he finds Professor Stokes and brings Julia and Stokes into the basement of the old house and pleads with Stokes, Barnabas, or presses Stokes rather, to tell him more about the I Ching. And Barnabas is now, he wants to he is the protect he's the protector of the family. He wants, he's come quite a long way. He wants to say. Right. David, who he used to want to kill. At one time, Bar- lest we forget, Barnum has wanted to kill David when he was a vampire. Now he is, wants to save David's life and save Chris, who can't turn back into a human. And that's part of the Barnabas becoming the, the head of the household thing that happened yeah. when Elizabeth was, Elizabeth was, quote unquote, dead and Roger was away. Mm. He kind of took on that role and kept it, even though, you know, they're back. They're actually all living in his house now. Yeah. So he's literally the protector of the entire family. They're all under his roof. Yeah. Exactly. Um, which is a huge change from his original vampire storyline. Right. Right. You know, and it's and it's one of the reasons I think a lot of us, you know, really fell fell in love with that character. And, and you know, it's like mm-hmm. he was the bad guy. Now he's the good guy and and he's trying to do what's right. And then things will change again. So sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but well, that's one he, of the things that made Barnabas so compelling. He's complex. At the time, it still yeah. does. Yeah, you know, such it's a like he was the human trapped inside of the monster. And at this point in this series is when he is in some ways most fully human. Yeah. He's not making the, you know, even when Barnabas was sympathetic, he would have he would have bad moments where oh, he would wow. make he would have bad ideas and make bad decisions. But this Barnabas is not he's the human Barnabas and he's the head of the household in the sense and he's. He's just trying to help all of his, they're not technically his descendants. They're not really his cousins, even though that's what he calls them. He's trying to help his family. Very distant cousins, I guess. <laughs> right. Because they're yeah, descended would from be, They would be Daniel. cousins like five times removed or some crazy thing and yeah. have to look at a chart. Yeah, because they're, they're descended from Daniel. So he uses, uh, he asks Stokes if they can use the I Ching ones to communicate with Quentin. And Stokes says that it's possible, uh, but it's very dangerous for the uninitiated to use the I Ching. So Barnabas tries, he insists, they throw the wands and it forms the 49th hexagram, the hexagram of change, the co-hexagram. And, you know, the whole thing, Barnabas goes into the trance and sees the door and things don't go as planned. It's not, he doesn't 
like confront Quentin, of course, we're going to, he sees the chained coffin that he was in for almost 200 years. That's what he is confronted with when he uses the I Ching. And of course, that's going to lead to 1890. That is our doorway to 1897 and the next big time travel storyline where Barnabas sends his astral spirit into the past to inhabit his body in the coffin, which is a vampire still in 1897. Which is uh, just super cool. <laughs> it really is. It's such a cool way to kind of transition out of this storyline into the 1897 story. I mean, props to Sam and Gordon and Art Wallace and whoever the hell else, Violet, whoever else figured this out as a plot device. Yeah. Big thumbs up there because it's just like, wow, as a kid, it blew my mind. Well, and of uh, course, it made me want to find out about the I Ching. Yes, too, yes as a child. me too. <laughs> <laughs> and because, because I was born at the right time, the Scholastic Book Club, because of Dark Shadow's popularity, actually would offer things that you would never find at a book club today. So downstairs, I have um, astrology and other occult games, which I got <laughs> from the class from the Scholastic Book Club uh, around the same time as I got a volume on from the same book school book club on on classic witch club witchcraft spells which actually has you know it has how to make a magic circle how to how to do magic squares wow. all of this stuff from historical sur- sources and the astrology and other occult games has a section on the I Ching as well as a section on the tarot cards that I I use to this day. I use that book in Dr. Cushing to help with my tarot card readings. That is awesome. Uh, I love that. It came from, it came home from school folks. This was, you know, the late sixties and early seventies when, when people didn't believe in that devil crap. Uh, There's uh, a story. I I wasn't aware of this uh, until recently. Andrew Higgins, who listens to the show, and I will have him on at some point. uh, He wrote a great article about world dark shadows and world building uh, for for an uh, academic uh, collection that came out about different fictional worlds and world building. But he pointed out to me um, that there was a precedent for the I Ching in fiction in one of the pulp magazines. Uh, It was a story called The Door Without a Key by Seabury Quinn where it is the one instance prior to Dark Shadows where the I Ching was actually used as a means of time travel uh, in a oh, very cool. similar way to how Dark Shadows it is. So my guess is they had, they must have had access to that story. Because- yeah, I mean, these guys were old enough that the pulp magazines were probably things that they consumed when they were younger. <laughs> yeah. um, and you hit across something like that and you remember it you know, in the yeah, same way that we remember Dark Shadows now for it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, okay, wh- what about the I Ching? And the whole I Ching thing with the, the you know, you concentrate on the thing and you open the door and all that kind of stuff, that's all not how you usually use the I Ching. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's not. No, it's a, it's divinity. But as a kid, I loved it. And I even remember I made I Ching sticks, I Ching <laughs> wands of my own out of popsicle sticks. Oh, perfect. Awesome. <laughs> you tried, tried to do some, uh, some astral projection there. I hope you got, yeah. Uh, Never could up. get the door to open. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I could look up the uh, the hexagrams in my little astrology and other cult, occult games book. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, that's great. That's great. I have some. I got from a zine that somebody made them and they made them look just like the Dark Shadows ones. They're made out of wood and they have the little white line in the middle and stuff. So I, I still have those. They're wow. Really now you're making me want to have a set and I don't have a set. <laughs> and I feel like I feel like a bad Dark Shadows fan because I don't have a set of Iching wants that are actual Iching wants. I think <laughs> I think most people probably probably don't. The ones I've seen don't even really look like the Dark Shadows ones. They look a little different. But I got I wanted I saw some fan like made a set and that they were selling in the back of a zine and those ads. Oh, and cool. I was like, I'll get I'll get one of those. Sure. Um, you can actually do it with um. You can do it with coins as well. Yeah, is the yep. other thing to know. And that was and the, this lovely little book that I have describes all the different ways you can actually do it with very, various different objects if you don't have eaching wands to cast. Yeah, and so. it's it's a great use of uh, sort of an occult uh, device for time travel. It's like a new thing they introduce and it becomes a, a recurring trope too where they'll, they'll use the I Ching for, for different things or to, to try to send their spirit back to in, in time. Right, once they've done it. Now Barnabas did a be brief spirit hop back in time at the end of the second redux of the Vicky thing, right? Yes. So it's not completely unprecedented that he could send his spirit back in time. But honestly, I think it really works better this time mm-hmm. in terms of the storytelling because yeah. they've they've kind of anchored it. Okay. And I, I don't know, did you ever read the um the Western comics Dark Shadows? series the gold key yeah oh, yeah, yeah the gold key yeah yeah i have i, I have the, the hermes press puts out i mean i have a lot of the original issues but i also got the collections that hermes right press and in that they, they never kind of really watched the show a lot but they picked yeah. up certain things one of the things that they picked up was that barnabas could send his his soul into the past yes so that ended up it doesn't happen that often in the in the show, but it happened like every other issue. Totally, yeah, they the did that a lot. <laughs> the Gold Key Comics did a lot of crazy things for sure. Yeah, that, that definitely that became a recurring go to for for them. As, yeah, and as a kid, that always dis- they disappointed me. But reading rereading them now as an adult, I can, uh, yeah, they're not Dark Shadows really, no. you know, in, in any meaningful way. But they're an interesting take on Dark Shadows. Yeah, I'm, you know, by people that didn't really didn't clearly didn't really know the series I but are still trying hard sure i don't think any of the sort of spin-off media for dark shadows ever really fully captured it the gold key and the novel the ross novels too it's just they think they're their own i consider all of those things their own kind of parallel time like they exist right. in their own parallel universe anyway okay wrapping yep. up wrapping this up closing up. thoughts closing thoughts on this storyline uh steven i think this is Just fortuitously for when I started viewing, I think this is a great place to start viewing the series because it starts by writing out the old the old Adam storyline and really propels you forward into what we both talked about as probably being one of the best one of the best portions of the series, one of the best storylines, the great era of Dark Shadows. And one of the great things about coming in here when I did was it then, if if I went back to the beginning of Dark Shadows or even to the Barnabas storyline, which is a little shaky in places at the start, I was willing to forgive that because Dark Shadows had hooked me with this one. Yeah. And the writing and the characters and all aspects of the production, I think, were as strong as they could get here. And so I think this is actually a great place for people to start and pick up the storyline. And you need some of this to get into the 1897 storyline, which is 
what Dark Shadows is is all about in some sense. It's really, you know, that's when it was an even bigger hit. That's when we got the the long playing album, which I played to death as a kid. And it's a great place to start. And it's one of the best storylines that they ever did. And this is the prelude to it, I guess, is yes. what I want to say. Start if you're a real purist, start at the beginning. If you just love vampires, start with Barnabas. But if you want to start when Dark Shadows was at peak, this is the prelude era that leads you into that. And you can see as it escalates here, as we we get the old storylines with Victoria Winters and the old Adam storylines, as those fall away during interspiced with the start of this storyline, you get to start into the the full power of Dark Shadows at this point. And I think it's a great place to start. Awesome. I, I agree. I think it is a great place to start as well. And uh, if you love ghosts and werewolves, this is this is the storyline for you, for sure, because that's that's what you're going to get in, uh, in this storyline. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Dark Shadows and your love of all things spooky uh, and your background in role playing and and in writing. And what, where can fans find out more about your projects? Because you're always working on a many things things are very prolific so what, what where can fans find out what you're working on now well the, the easiest place is at my website which is stephendsullivan.com and that's spelled with a ph like stephen strange dr strange <laughs> not <laughs> not the v as in stephen spielberg ph stephen stephen king stephen strange me uh <laughs> stephen d sullivan or you can abbreviate that to sdsullivan.com it'll take you to the same place you can find me on facebook under my own name uh, and I will accept fan requests if you say, hey, hey, I like your books or, hey, I want to talk to you about Dark Shadows or whatever. So you can find me there, too. Uh, you can hear Atomic Tales, which is my 1950s giant giant bugs and UFO story every month on the Memiverse audio podcast from SaintEuphoria.com, their monthly audio cast. There's a new episode of that every month we're up to episode 11 this month and that is also on my site you can find that on my main site or go to atomictales.com and we'll hook you up there plus you know almost every book i have ever written has a url attached to it so if you go to cushinghorrors.com you you can find dr cushing if you look in patreon want to throw me a buck or two a month to support this stuff i'm there too i'm all over the web so shouldn't be too hard to find or you can ask penny dreadful danielle here I will definitely send anybody who asks your way for sure. Uh, please check out Stephen's work. It's, he is immensely talented and you will not be thank disappointed. Uh, thank you again, Stephen, for joining me. Right. So we're doing this again tomorrow, right? Yes. <laughs> and the day after. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly dissipated. For there will always be terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.